Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 87 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Joining me today is Bradley Hope, an author and reporter who worked for The National, where he covered the Arab Spring in 2010 and 2011, as well as The Wall Street Journal, where he was a finance reporter based in London and later New York City. He's also written several books along with his co-authors, including Last Days of the Pharaoh, Billion Dollar Whale, and Blood and Oil. I invited Bradley onto the podcast to talk about his newest book, The Rebel and the Kingdom. It's the story of an incredible confrontation between an activist organization and the Kim regime in North Korea, which culminated in an incident at the North Korean embassy in Madrid, Spain in 2019. The fallout from this event was heard and seen around the world and led to enormous consequences for everyone involved. But the origins of this event began more than 16 years earlier, in the spring of 2002, when an idealistic 19-year-old student at Yale University named Adrian Hong first learned of the plight of the citizens of North Korea and decided to do something about it. But before we dive into this amazing story, I want to tell you all about my favorite fragrance for daily wear. It's called Novichok by Clandestine Laboratories. Novichok is distinctive and combined notes of cocoa powder, chocolate almond tort, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, tonka bean, Peru balsam, and musk tonkin. Unlike some of the other colognes I've worn in the past, I found that Novichok stays with me all day, which was a pleasant surprise. If the name sounds familiar to you, then you might already know why I was so happy to find this company and support them. The name itself comes from the very well-known Russian nerve agent Novichok, which has been used in recent years in several assassination attempts, which I've covered here on the podcast in previous episodes. The name is spelled differently, but rest assured, once you put this on, you'll still make a killer impression wherever you go. Novichok is made in small batches by clandestine laboratories and, like their entire lineup, is available only via direct order. If you're not sure which of their fragrances is right for you, you can also check out the Discovery Stash, six different mini bottles at one great price, which is perfect for finding your signature scent. So make sure to check them out either via a link in the show notes of this episode at their website, clandestinelaboratories.com, or on Instagram at clandestinelaboratories. Bradley, thank you for sitting down with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I've been wanting to talk about this story on the podcast since before I even aired my very first episode almost two years ago. And now I finally have the chance here with you. Yeah, it's been a crazy story to watch over the last couple of years. Yeah, I can I can only imagine what it was like for you so much closer to the actual events and people. So on that note, for how long have you known about and written about Adrian Hong? Well, I actually met Adrian Hong quite a long time ago. I was I was a, a journalist covering the Libyan Civil War, and I wrote this story about this 18-year-old kid from from California who joined the rebels on his spring break. And it was like a, one of those stories that went completely viral just because it was so crazy. And the, the young guy was a Korean American. 
And when I wrote this story, I got an email from Adrian who said that he happened to be in Libya too, and he was hoping that he could help this guy called Christopher Christopher John to, to go back home. That was my first interaction with him, and I was pretty intrigued because there weren't a lot of Americans floating around Libya at the time unless they were working in the government, they were a contractor of some kind, or they were a journalist, and he didn't appear to be any of those things. And so that was the beginning of our our kind of relationship. And I would and I would meet him over the years. You know, every year I'd probably meet him, just because he was an interesting person and he seemed to be doing interesting things. He seemed to be doing things that he wasn't telling me about, but maybe that was part of why I was intrigued to keep meeting him. And um, I found him to be a very idealistic person and very driven. And so he was a very charismatic person to know. But I never wrote an article about him in any way whatsoever until, essentially, until this event happened in 2019, which I had seen the news about this. And I had actually asked him, I said, oh, if anybody knows about this, it must be you. And he wrote back something kind of noncommittal. And then not that long later, I saw one day, just looking at Twitter, I saw a wanted poster with his face on it. And it said, armed and dangerous. And I just became really obsessed with understanding how it came to be that he was where he was. Wow, that's amazing. So you sat down, you know, face to face with him multiple times. And I'm, I'm sure that you have, you know, spoken with people, interviewed people in many different contexts. And he kept all of this from you for so long, very deliberately, you know, everything that led up to this event as well, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly right. It's 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 interesting that I kind of knew him almost as almost like a friend before I knew him as a subject of stories, you know, hmm. and it, it gave me a pretty unique insight into him because when you look at that wanted poster, it said armed and dangerous, and it made him sound like he could be almost a kind of a an international radical terrorist or something, you know, mm-hmm. and, but I but I knew instantly that it was wrong. It was the wrong portrait of him because I had met him so many times. I would have known if I was dealing with a kind of dangerous, violent person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I can see why that would drive you, like you've mentioned, the obsession to get this story right in the end. So you worked on, I mean, the book just came out in November, I think. Is that is that right, November? That's correct. Yeah, so almost three years or so of writing, editing, publishing, all that to get it right? Yeah, you know, it, all, all books, in my experience, they take a long time because they, they start gestating a long time before they come out well before you even have a book deal, right? So in some ways, my first meeting with Adrian in 2011 was the planting of the seed that eventually became a book, right? So that would be an eight-year cycle before he, I, I started even working on a book. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't, And then and even longer before it came out. So I think the actual research that went into it and the writing probably was over about two years. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my only thing that I was doing at the time, but it took up a lot of my time. Okay. Okay. I see. So let's go back to the beginning of Adrian's story. I understand he had kind of an unusual upbringing and it certainly seems like that set him on a a course of, you know, helping people and activism and that sort of thing. Although it went, you know, very much sideways, I guess you could say from what anyone would have expected. So can you talk a little bit about his, his childhood and upbringing? Yeah. So he was actually born in Mexico. His parents were South Korean missionaries and they were especially active in Mexico. And so he was born there. And as a result, he's actually a Mexican citizen. He never got his American citizenship, which later on we'll 
will prove to be a problem for him, which I can explain later. But he, but in essence, he was a Korean American. He grew up in San Diego from from childhood and very much identified and seemed American in all ways and had American values. I would say, and and it's interesting that I've and I've learned this through my interactions. And I'm obviously not. I have no Korean heritage of all, at all, but I've spoken to many Korean Americans about the way that they don't really connect with the concept of North Korea in their own homes because South Koreans are are, are typically. It sounds like a generalization, but it's it's pretty pretty common that you find that they don't talk about North Korea very much, and if they do, it's more of an individual family story, and and probably not very political and not very complete. Point of view, so when when Adrian was a young guy in high school, he really really wasn't focused on North Korea. And I, I spoke to people in his school, and they said they'd never really even ever heard him speak about North Korea. But like many Korean Americans, when he went to university, he was very smart. He got into Yale. When he got there, he was kind of a young man in search of a cause. He he had something that was driving him. You could argue that you know that his family's kind of missionary background probably was some featured that in some way. And then he he kind of connected suddenly in a strong way with his Korean identity. And he and he became, you know, it's not that he wasn't aware of it before, but he really seemed to connect with it. And he started reading a lot and and understanding just the how almost insanely scary scary it is to be a North Korean and, and the the experience of North Koreans, especially in the prison camps. And at the time that he was in Yale, this the there was a lot of testimonies coming out finally about North Korea, and there was more there was more concerted efforts to seek those testimonies from the escapees of North Korea, and so he really hooked on to this as a cause that he was sort of destined to be involved in, considering his heritage, as well. And so he really became active, and he created this group at Yale called Liberty in North Korea, which actually grew. Rapidly across all of America, and then later on the whole world, and it's a it's a global North Korean human rights advocacy group, and so he he was the founder, it, and it was just it all started with college kids selling brownies outside of the school, and it became this global institution which exists to this day. So that was kind of his his real entryway into activism, and he also sort of got started with. Something that would become a feature for him later on, which is risk taking. Immediately, he was he was aware that the idea of demonstrating or throwing protests or whatever it might be was not going to change the equation for North Korea. And so, this little group of college students they started using some of the money that they were raising to fund these shelters on the border between China and North Korea. And then he started to travel over there. And and at one point, he traveled all the way to the North Korean border, and he met some of these. Escapees, and then th- that kind of brings us to the sort of first major moment, which is he he decided to try to escort some of these people, North Korean escapees, to the U.S. embassy, and he successfully did it. He just he went there, he got them, he traveled all the way across the country, got them into the embassy, and they were on their way to America. But then when he tried it again, not that long after, he found out that the U.S. embassy wouldn't accept anymore, and Long story short, the he and all the escapees and then two other members of his group were arrested by the Chinese government and thrown in a prison where they could have actually faced a really long sentence. But luckily, his group had such good 
political connections in the U.S. government that they were the U.S. government got them released and actually got the North Koreans released as well, who were sent to America eventually. Hmm. Yeah, amazing guy. And I can't believe that he kind of seemingly came out of nowhere. And he, like you said, he founded Link Liberty in North Korea, and it grew to like hundreds of chapters spread across America, didn't it, on all these college campuses? Still exists. What do you think is Adrian's, like, what is his talent exactly? You mentioned the risk-taking, of course, but how is it that he just seems to be someone who can visualize something and then he just makes it happen, right? I mean, is it just hard work or is it ability to get people to do what he wants, like he's a very convincing guy or a combination of all of that? I, I think I would put it, there's probably more than one feature, but one of them is that he has a great deal of confidence, even as a young person, and a lot of self-belief that even one person can make a difference. And this, this is part of his charisma as well, why he convinced so many people to follow him and to essentially take part in dangerous activities, is he convinced them, and he, and he obviously believed himself, that individuals can make a difference and that there's no challenge that's too big. In, in, in another life, he would have gone on to become, you know, the founder of a tech startup that, that raised hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm sure of it. You know, he had that kind of persuasiveness. And that what, what led him on this path instead was the fact that he he's a, a kind of, ultimately, he chose a selfless path because he didn't make any money doing what he was doing. In fact, he put all the money he was making into this cause. So I think it's it's a combination. It's it's a deep compassion. And, and I found this time and again with anybody who ever interacted with him, that he was able to really connect with them and be generous with his time and 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 unpretentious in a way about their experience, their lives. You know, he, he spent a lot of time with ordinary people just understanding what was going on in their life, what they were up against, combining that and and this and this sort of confidence that righteous causes are are led by people like him who just believe that they can make a difference not even that they have some special skill but just because they're 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 singular in their focus you know hmm. yeah he sounds like one in a billion honestly that, I, that was my takeaway from the whole book yeah I, he's definitely a unique character i mean uh, other people in the group have had were less sure of themselves than he was, you know? And, and so, and you can see later on that as soon as he disappears, really the group disappears because it was not really a self-sustaining group. It was really Adrian's group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly. So you mentioned that on this second trip to China, he winds up in jail. Like how did that happen exactly? Because, you know, a Chinese jail as a foreigner is just about the last place I would ever want to end up, I think. Yeah. So he, so he showed up at the embassy in Shenzhen, actually a consulate, not an embassy, and expecting that they would accept this new batch of North Koreans who, who technically were valid asylum seekers in America because of this act passed by George W. Bush to make it possible for North Koreans to seek political asylum in America. Obviously, the hard part for North Koreans is getting to America or getting mm -hmm. to an embassy. It's very hard. Even from North Korea to, to Shenzhen is a long journey. And there's a lot of risks because there's not a lot of North Koreans wandering around China. And, and part of that is because North Korea is very capitulates to North Korea all the time. So North Korea, so China doesn't recognize the idea that a North Korean person could be a political asylum seeker. Anybody outside of North Korea illegally 
is in their view an economic migrant, meaning they they escaped to make money or whatever it might be, and they're illegally out there. So they always get sent back. And and so it's a very perilous journey all the way from those border regions to Shenzhen even, or much less Beijing or Shanghai or wherever else. Many North Koreans, when they escape North Korea, they actually go through China and out on the most, the longest, most circuitous journey. It would make the idea from traveling from Mexico to the U.S. seem like a cakewalk because they have to travel across an entire giant country that's that at any moment they could be arrested by police. Then they have to cross into other countries, places like Mongolia, Thailand, and then eventually, once they get into those countries. They can find a South Korean embassy that will then immediately grant them a passport. South Korea grants any North Korean who shows up a passport because South Korea believes all of Korea should be unified and that they are in fact citizens of South Korea. So, anyways, what Adrian was trying to do is help these escapees get to the U.S. by him escorting them to the the consulate in Shenzhen. So this time he showed up and they said, "Sorry, we're not going to accept anybody else." So he 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 took a big risk just showing up like that. You know, there was no pre coordination with the U.S. government. So he was hmm. he would, the whole group was panicking, and he said, "Listen, do you want to go back to the shelter, or shall we try to go to Beijing instead and find another another way out?" And they all agreed that it would. They felt it was safer to keep going rather than go back. And so he he thought that there was probably too much heat on himself. Because he was calling the embassy on an open line, and, and he had a feeling that they were being surveilled, so he went ahead to Beijing on a plane, and then the group got a bus, or I think they rented a taxi that was like a van. And the next morning, he was expecting them to show up, and they they didn't show up. It had been hours; he hadn't heard from them. Suddenly, somebody knocked on the door, and it, it was like housekeeping. And then when he opened the door, it was it was a, a whole load of Chinese police officers. So they they arrested him. But he, this is kind of a good good example of an Adrian moment. In in the kind of hubbub, he folded a phone into the hood of his hoodie, so so he so he had a phone with him that that somehow I think it had service that he could text America. And so while he was transported to this jail with and and he was reunited with the other members of the group and the Chinese escapees were put in a different cell. He managed to send messages to his team to tell them what was going on and where he was headed. While he was in jail, which he described as a pretty grim place, of course, he actually went on a hunger strike for a period of time as part of the pressure campaign. And eventually, that his campaign plus efforts by the U.S. government over over Christmas of that year, by the way, they had people had to go to the White House during Christmas to help out with this problem. They eventually were all released, and then a few months later, the North Koreans were released too. Hmm. It's amazing. What what year was this? Like two thousand six or something like that? I think. Yes, I believe it was two thousand six. Yeah, there was a case in the news at the time. You would, you'll find editorials for the Shenzhen Six, I think it was called, that were essentially these these North Koreans that were that were became a political cause in America, especially in the conservative mm-hmm. side of the government. Was that was that Adrian Six or was that the people that were like kind of tackled at the gate? Because I've seen that photo before of the woman and child. Was that the Shenzhen Six, or was no? It this is so. This was this this part was Adrian's people, yeah. but there was also previous cases that were similar. So it had been sort of a trend, like you okay. said. Okay, okay, absolutely. Yeah, I think it, so. It seems like you were able to interview in depth one of the refugees that came to the U.S. and his story. Talk about just the highs and lows of life. It was absolutely incredible what he went through growing up in North Korea compared to what he found once he finally made it to the U.S. I mean, it's you know just 
almost a tearjerker, I would say, really, how, how far he came in life, you know, thanks to the efforts of Adrian and his own bravery in escaping in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the if I really recommend that anybody, I think everybody in the world should read at least one of these North Korean escape stories. They, they A lot of them have been written as autobiographies. There's some that are older and there's some that are more recent. And they are the most extraordinary stories I've ever read. You know, it, 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 the only comparison would be something... One of the the one of the most powerful stories from World War II of people escaping concentration camps and things like that, you know. So one one of my favorites and one that actually inspired Adrian that's a bit older is called Aquariums of Pyongyang, and that mm-hmm. one is that one's all about this one person who he's his family is Korean, but they he's born in Japan and he's his family are persuaded to come back to North Korea because it's an exciting new place and. And and there was this big effort to kind of get people to return to North Korea and it's and it's sort of post-World War II era, to, that it's, a, it's this exciting place, we can build our country. But when they got there, they realized it wasn't anything like what they had thought. And they and their, their lives quickly went downhill until the point where they are all thrown in a prison camp. And he, he evokes all the details of what life is like in these prison camps, which are, are literally not much different than a concentration camp of World War II. There, there wasn't systematic extermination of people, but they grind them down to the, the absolute most the smallest bit of soul left, keeping them busy for 24 hours a day, no food, hardly, you know, brutal treatment, and in some cases, execution. And he describes all of it in the book. And, and likewise, some of these other more recent ones including Joseph Kim, who is the, one of the people that was rescued by Adrian in that first group that he got out before the second group got arrested. And, and, and their journey only, it, it doesn't end when they escape because even just making their way in the world as North Koreans and understanding how things work in the rest of the world is, is a huge challenge. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of substance abuse, a lot of guilt because they leave behind their families in North Korea who actually have a worse time because they escaped. Mm-hmm. North Korea is, is actually what they say when there was a famous op-ed, it's worse than 1984, you know, the book by George Orwell, because mm-hmm. it's just that kind of a world, but much worse. And so there's even these things like something called Songbun, which is like your ranking in North Korean society that's set by the government, of course. And it's very easy to fall and very hard to, to go up. And if you if you're if somebody in your family escapes, then the whole rest of their family, the Songbun declines. And sometimes they're even thrown in prison camps as punishment for the other person escaping. Hmm. It's incredible stuff. And, you know, I feel like I can read a lot about it. I can watch the documentaries. I can talk to people like you or to the, you know, the refugees themselves one day. But I'll never truly understand you know, what it's like, like generations of, of hopelessness and despair. You know what I mean? Like you're totally trapped in that system, except for the minuscule percentage, the fraction of 1% that actually escape. And then, like you said, their families continue to suffer even worse because one person got out. It's, it's really hard for us to conceptualize in the West, I think, no matter how we see it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's such a riveting story, though. It's hard to turn away from. Yeah, definitely. There's another one that just came out that I um, I actually, I spoke alongside one of the co-authors called Hard Road Out. And it's also, it's a, they're all very different. You know, the, the escape stories are different depending on whether or not they went to a prison camp or if they just escaped. And th- this one was also just really beautifully evoked. Just the, the strange 
for for us as Americans, the strange life of a North Korean and how much how much harder it is than anything we could ever imagine. You know, I think it's really an important thing for all of us to read just to get a sense of, in a way, how lucky we are, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that you can take away from it, no matter what, I'm certain. I've been reading more and more, including your book, of course, about it, but I feel like I've barely scratched the surface the past year or two. But the more I learn, you know, the more terrifying it really is for the people that are trapped in that system. Definitely. So, Bradley, how did Adrian wind up? I mean, this this stuff with the refugees in China is incredible. But then, like you mentioned earlier, you end up meeting him in Libya, of all places, during the Arab Spring. So what was he doing in Libya? How did that play into the, you know, his larger goals related to North Korea exactly? So, you know, from the moment he created Link at Yale, he he was he was very ends driven. He wanted to liberate North Koreans, and it sounds like a pretty ambitious goal, but that was kind of in his mind. He, he didn't want to just sort of make a small dent. He wanted to, to help cause an avalanche, you know. And so he actually quit the group that he founded one day completely suddenly. And the members of the group were almost upset with him because he was the visionary leader. And he just said, listen, Link is important, but it's not going to do the thing that I'm set out to do. And so what happened is he he went on this kind of solo journey from that point on, creating a different series of groups and organizations that were taking more and more ambitious and in some ways you could say aggressive stance towards North Korea. And so he was he was started off thinking we should get the world to care about North Korea. But by the end, which we can get to, he was thinking we should topple the regime of North Korea and mm. we, we should be the ones to do it. So uh, the next stage he went through was thinking about other kind of clandestine ways to help people in North Korea. So he he created a kind of nonprofit that was devoted to using technology to help people in autocracies around the world, you know. And so they were looking at different ways they could beam the Internet in and get information in. He took part in some of these activities in the in South Korea where they they put a whole lot of information on balloons and they and they float them into North Korea in a certain mm -hmm. place. And then he also became a sort of a student of revolutions. So when the Arab Spring broke out, he he was in, super intrigued and he got in touch with one of the revolutionaries that was was part of the resistance against the Gaddafi regime. And that guy agreed to take him in and they started working together. He was looking at it all as a blueprint in a way for what could happen in North Korea. And also he was studying what went wrong with that that transition too because he was always thinking about the long term he wasn't thinking about just toppling the regime eventually but also rebuilding the country and and, and one of the next places he went next steps was creating something called the Joseon Institute which created all these blue paper blueprints and white papers that were about what do we do how do we turn the electricity on after the regime falls or how do we start, how do we provide nutrition to people who are in concentration camps for a decade? Like, what do you, you know, what lessons can we learn from World War II about that? And how do we start, how do we reform the education system for people who've been brainwashed by their government? And, and how do we start to open their eyes to what, what the world really is? And so, anyways, you can see he kept taking these steps up on the way. Yeah, he is. It's, it's just amazing to me. Like he sees a revolution happening somewhere else 
and he wants to learn from it. So he just, he just goes, he just goes to the revolution to see, you know, what value he can provide and what he can take away from it for, you know, what he wants to see happen in the world. Really just incredible. A guy that just decides that something needs to be done and then decides that he's going to be the one to do it and, and really makes it happen. It's just, you know, makes me shake my head in disbelief almost. Yeah, definitely. He he was never, he was always the kind of person that thought, oh, I'll call somebody. I'll go there. I'll travel somewhere. He was, he was a huge traveler. He went, he was always traveling around the world, even just for a meeting, you know, and it, and it, it, it helped him create quite an interesting network that he could call upon for whatever might be happening. You know, he had friends in different countries. He knew like in, in Libya, he got to know a lot of military contractors who, who he would talk to about other things, you know? So it, it was, it was all part of building this in, kind of a private intelligence network in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredible, incredible stuff. And he was also, as I recall, he built a huge number of contacts among like congressional staff members and that sort of thing. So he could get meetings, he could, you know, pick up the phone and get lawmakers involved in what he was involved in himself, that sort of thing. And it, you know, it, I guess that helped a little bit when he or it helped a lot when he was in China as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think probably the U.S. government always saw him as a very intriguing person, but also kind of dangerous because he wasn't carrying out U.S. policy, but he was operating in this space that's of, of great interest to national security. So so and then the people who were involved in human rights discussions all thought of him as a, a kind of a hero. And so he had a lot of different contacts. And even even I later learned that after he spent time in Libya, he was approached by the FBI's counterintelligence division just to kind of, they were a little worried about this guy that was going to places like Libya and coming back. And they wanted to know what was going on. Who was he a part of, you know? Mm -hmm. So they thought that he was part of a network rather than kind of the initiator of his own network. Is that, would that be accurate? You think? Yeah, I think that's accurate. He, he, you know, it's, it's also easy to think of him, a lot of people, including in Spain, which we can get into later, they thought of him as a spy, an American spy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think when you look a little closer, you can see why he wasn't a spy, because if you were indeed a spy doing this kind of work, you would have had a much lower profile than he had. You know, he was giving speeches, mm -hmm. he was outspoken, he was doing these operations under his own name, he wasn't carrying out intelligence gathering missions, you know. So, so in some ways, when I first met him, I had the same kind of thought. I thought, okay, there is a guy wearing a suit in the middle of a civil war. You know, is he a businessman who's actually has a second life as, a, as an intelligence officer for the U.S. government? I couldn't quite figure it out. But what I learned over time was what's even crazier is that he was in no way an intelligence officer. He was completely independent, but he was using some of the tools that you would that you would use as an intelligence officer to further his kind of human rights goals. Yeah, yeah, right. And I know we'll we'll get into this later on. I know that he had some contact with members of the CIA in particular overseas, but you know, initially before reading your book, I thought certainly he had to be, you know, affiliated in some way, you know, not necessarily an employee or anything, but you know, receiving some sort of support along the way, and your book kind of dispelled me of that because I can see how they would be interested in him and how he could you know, on the surface, be a very useful person to the intelligence community. But at the same time, it's clear that he is not someone who can be directed in any way. He's going to do what he wants at all times, was my impression. Like, he's not going to answer to anyone else, and he's just going to decide what needs to be done and then do it himself. Yeah, I think that's correct. 
that's that's completely my view of it after spending all this time researching the story. Mm-hmm. Mm, amazing stuff. So when he left Libya, had he at that time kind of formalized, at least in his own mind, like a plan for how to topple the Kim regime or at the very least, you know, the next steps on that path? I think, you know, in my experience, he actually was thinking at that point that the North Korean regime was about to fall by itself. He had this kind of confidence that there was no way that it could last without kind of collapsing on itself. I think what he realized over the following years, because, you know, I knew him when Kim Jong-il died and Kim Jong-un became the new leader. And I think he had this feeling that the dynasty that leads North Korea was more fragile than it actually is. And so he kept thinking it was all going to collapse. And then he, and as he realized that it's actually a remarkably effective form of dictatorship, he started to shift gears and think about, well, what could we do to hasten the collapse or cause the collapse? And so that's when he started to kind of build what he called at the time, or what eventually became called Cholema Civil Defense. And it was a kind of a clandestine network, essentially, that would do more operational things. So it was no longer about blueprints. It was no longer about intelligence. It was also about doing things, helping people out in various ways, helping North Koreans. Or, or, and, and then one of the goals was to also build a kind of a government in exile, which is something he learned from the Libyan case. Libya had a government in exile for many years while Gaddafi was the, the leader of the country. And they were abroad and they were kind of at, agitating for other governments to put pressure on Gaddafi. So he was working on those things, and that's and that's when things really started stepping up. And they, they did a lot of things behind the scenes. And if you if they had a website where they kind of obliquely re- referred to some of their operations, but essentially they started rescuing people, especially people who were more high profile. People, North Koreans who are allowed to travel abroad are typically from the highest echelon of society. They have a lot of freedom. They have privileges, they have more money, things like that. And as a result, they have more intelligence about the regime itself. So they started rescuing people, helping people out. But they're, they're, the really big moment for them came when the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. So this, this was the brother of Kim Jong-il, who had during the lifetime during his own lifetime, been sort of excommunicated from North Korea. He was kind of an embarrassing figure. He he tried to travel to Japan under a fake passport, and he was going to he was doing things like going to Disneyland, I think. And he was kind of a quirky, weird figure, and he was sort of pushed out of North Korea. But because North Korea is a dynasty, so it's almost like the the leaders of the Kim regime. They're almost ordained by God to lead North Korea. It's one of the quirks of, of the way this country works. They have these crazy sort of mythologies about North Korea's leaders and how they were able to do things that no ordinary human could do. So when, when he was assassinated, even though he was weird and quirky and all these things, he was actually very valuable to foreign intelligence services. And he was known to be close or have a relationship, a formal relationship to both the U.S. and Chinese intelligence apparatuses because the way they the way they looked at him was okay maybe he's a source of intelligence of some kind but more importantly he's kind of the person you want to have around just in case because theoretically he's from the same bloodline they call it the there's a the Bakdu bloodline that that 
that gives him a kind of a claim to the throne. So Kim Jong-un, who was the leader of North Korea and, and emerged as this really brutal kind of leader, he he set in motion this long brewing plan to assassinate his uncle. So to, to make it clear that there is no other people to contest the throne except for him and whoever he decides is his heir. And so they assassinated him in Malaysia, which was the one country that had a no visa policy with, with North Korea and a lot of kind of weird and, and shady trade between the two countries. Kim Jong-nam went to Malaysia on a trip and he allegedly met with his handler from the CIA on a little island in Malaysia. And as he was leaving, these two women smeared these chemicals on his face in consecutive order that combined into a nerve agent that killed him within hours. The whole operation is, is so menacing and scary because it's so detailed and so elaborate. You know, they were clearly sending a message. Kim Jong-nam had a family that were living in Macau. He had a son and a daughter and a wife. And Adrian had met the son at one point and stayed in touch. And the first person that Kim Jong-nam's son, Kim Han-sol, his name is, called was Adrian. He said, and they were talking about this, you know, Adrian was saying, you know, are you safe? I mean, your father was assassinated. And eventually Kim Han-sol says, no, I'm not safe and I need your help. So Adrian set in motion a plan to rescue that family and get them to a safe European country where they could seek asylum. And he sent one of the key characters of this whole saga called Christopher Ahn to go and, and meet them in Taiwan. And then what happened after that was essentially the CIA showed up and said, we'll take it from here. And, and that family got on a plane and they've never been seen since formally, though somebody did claim to have seen Kim Han Sol, the young the younger, the son of Kim Jong-nam, they, they claim they saw him at a Starbucks in Washington, D.C. So he hmm. may be under, it sounds like he's under witness. They're obviously under a, a kind of witness protection program in America. And in some ways, they're keeping them safe for the same reason they had a relationship with his father, because Kim Han-sol is really a kind of prince of North Korea. And, and, and he's Western educated and has different views about North Korea. And he's, he could theoretically contest you know, the, the position of the ruler of, of North Korea. But that was when Adrian's group really kind of took a step up because th this was publicly identified as a Cholema civil defense operation. And they started receiving a lot more inbound inquiries and, and they started receiving a lot of attention, including from the media. Hmm. That's incredible. And you know, the way that you phrase it there, honestly, that he was a prince of North Korea. And then when his life is in danger, the first person he calls is Adrian. Really incredible, honestly. Yeah, because, you know, in some ways, the, the family didn't have the relationship with the intelligence agencies. That was all done mm -hmm. through the dad. So they were just left, you know, completely exposed in a Chinese territory. You know, they could they, they would definitely be assassination targets as well because he would right. the North Koreans would exterminate the whole line, you know. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't they? Honestly, I mean, it's no sense in leaving them alive from the perspective of the Kim regime. So since you mentioned Christopher, can you talk about how he got involved and why he got involved in the first place? Because he's quite a fascinating character himself to me. Yeah, he's, he's quite fascinating. And, and in ways, the way he's fascinating, because he's so different than Adrian. You know, obviously, he was Korean American as well. He is Korean American, and he grew up in California. So they have that in common. But 
he, as a young man, he became the head of the household when his father passed away suddenly from cancer. So he had, he was a very mature, you know, responsible person. And he decided to join the Marines, you know, in part because of 9-11 and spent some years in the Marines. And then when he got out, he was looking to start a career and to be a businessman like his, like his father was. And he met Adrian because a, a kind of mutual contact introduced him as two kind of young young men on a, on a journey and maybe they're different but they might get along and when they met um Christopher knew about Adrian's past as a activist and human rights defender and he felt a connection with that with with wanting to do something for others and to make a contribution beyond just having a job and even Adrian joked with him that he shouldn't go to business school he should just start a business you know it was it was a very Adrian point of view and then when they were when they were leaving, Christopher said to Adrian, "Well, if you ever need any help with anything, you know, I'd be happy to help. I'd be happy to be a volunteer." And so Adrian started inviting him along to all these different things over the years, including the Joseon Institute, where they were creating these white papers and blueprints for what happens after North Korea falls. And then, kind of subtly, Christopher became a very distant member of the actual operational group. And at the time when they were doing operational things before, it was more it was it was pretty simple, and and just by luck, when when Kim Jong Nam was assassinated, Christopher was on a holiday in the Philippines, so he was Adrian's closest contact that was that was nearest to Macau and Taiwan, which is where they wanted to get the family as a first step. So so Adrian called him and said, "Hey, where are you?" And he said, "I'm in the Philippines." And Adrian's first word was perfect. Then I mean you can do this. It's a good it's a good example also of this mission about how this group worked. It wasn't a well-funded group. Adrian didn't really say it, but it was up to Christopher to pay for the flights of all the family to Taiwan and then on to the Netherlands, which was the plan. And and Christopher, of course, he's he's used to being under pressure. He was a Marine in Fallujah. Anyways, he has no training in like intelligence or clandestine operations or anything like that. So he just went about it in a very for you know transparent simple way he flew to taiwan he flew them there they all met in the airport and they his goal was just to make them feel comfortable and safe before they traveled on to the netherlands at that point the the taiwan government wouldn't let them leave and he had to stick around for longer but it was kind of his introduction to the more operational side of this group cholema civil defense it, and, and it was their most notable activity to that point hmm. yeah Amazing stuff. I know that he, like you said, he just took his personal credit card and just paid for, you know, presumably thousands and thousands of dollars worth of international flights from Malaysia to the United States for himself and for the two of them and, you know, the lodging and all that. I mean, that's how they had to operate just kind of, you know, fly by night almost, I would say. But, you know, I was also thinking, I, I have listened to an interview of Christopher in the past and just my impression of him having not met him or anything like that, but my impression from that interview is... Adrian could not have picked a better person for this kind of thing because Christopher, he's, you know, a very large statured guy, probably one of the biggest Korean, ethnic Korean people that I've seen, honestly, but he's got this incredibly calming way of, of speaking and, you know, smiling and all that, everything I've seen about him. He seems like he's the perfect person that you would want to shepherd your family out of danger. If you feel like your life is in danger, you and your mother, for example. So, I mean, Adrian just kind of had him in his I wouldn't say in his back pocket, but Adrian had him in reserve until he needed him. And then Christopher was exactly who needed to be there at the time he went. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. In some ways, he looks, in some of the pictures that later came out, he looked almost like he was a bit of the the tough guy of the group. But in reality, he's the softy of the group. He's a very <laughs> emotionally intelligent person, very compassionate, takes care, even to this day, despite everything that's happened to him, takes care of his grandmother and his his mother and has a close relationship with his brother and his wife's parents. You know, he's he's really kind of a a rock in his family and, and always has been. And so he's definitely the kind of person that can put someone at ease and feel make them feel safe and, and listen to. And that was his role in the group. I would say he looks like kind of tough in one of the pictures, but really he was not never the person that was going to do anything tough, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amazing guy. Every day you're under attack whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life, your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever-expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi-layered defense strategy. Silent offers you the protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi-shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silent's lineup includes everything from signal-blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected undetectable, untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from Silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. So, like you mentioned briefly, the CIA kind of approached them at the airport there and spirited the family away. And that was it. So what happened with Christopher after that? And what happened with Adrian? Did they feel like they had, you know, failed in protecting the family or was it just kind of events overtaking them or something else? I think they felt they felt bad because they, you know, Adrian wanted to stay in touch with Kim Hansol. Obviously, it would, it would Kim Hansol would have been a great figurehead for this government in exile kind of concept that he was playing with. Mm -hmm. So they did, they felt like they lost an opportunity, but I think they were also proud to have played a role in, in making them safe. But, and they just felt like, you know, the U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. intelligence agencies had a different plan and it didn't involve Adrian, you know? And so in some ways, when the CIA guy showed up at the airport, they actually asked Christopher, they said, do you have any idea what you're doing? Like, this is like <laughs> major global geopolitical security stuff and you're just some guy you know who's here mm -hmm. and and to me that's a good example of just what this group was you know everybody in the world is debating nuclear weapons and having seminars and symposiums and then this little ragtag group was on the ground trying to make a difference and they were actually doing stuff right right that's another thing that's so amazing to me is they face all this resistance from 
the U.S. government and, you know, the international community. But if you look at the international community's track record with North Korea, nobody's really made any major inroads with them in, you know, 50 to 70 years, you know, from the time that Adrian started up until now. But I mean, they're still there. They're still well armed. They're still a major threat. They're still a very, you know, unstable regime. And so all these, you know, professional diplomats and, you know, intelligence personnel and all that, nobody else has really cracked that nut yet. And so Adrian had, you know, as much success as anyone with about 1% or maybe one-tenth of a percent of the resources at his disposal. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think they were always cash-strapped because they just had all these big ideas, but they didn't have anywhere near the money, you know? Mm -hmm. So... It's, it is it is a remarkable story because you just don't hear of stories like that you know no there's, there's no, not a lot yeah. there's no there's no real comparisons that I can think of in in recent memory especially absolutely absolutely so after this I know we kind of move into you, you mentioned it briefly earlier but they started to I don't know if target is the right word they started to focus on some of these North Korean diplomats you know people in other countries outside of North Korea anyway so what exactly was that? strategy about can you talk about that and you know where they went with it i think it's also partially that they started receiving these inbound inquiries from people like that but i think at the oh, same okay. time they were valuable people to focus on for this bigger cause which is to develop relationships with people who know how north korea works know the know the fragilities and the weak spots of it and also who have real intelligence and could even become part of a figurehead government in exile, in theory. I think at the end of the day, though, Adrian always had a very human rights point of view about this. So they would rescue people with no request of them. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to join his group or even agree with his group. He would, he would set in motion a rescue plan for any North Korean who wanted to escape. And it was up to them what they would do next. But, you know, I think he had some hopes that they would be a part of what he was trying to, to do. And, and even put other people at, you know, at ease about what they were doing as well. So they, they rescued a number of people during that time. And I think it's, it's really just a trend of, of the inbound inquiries and who, who was trying to escape North Korea. I mean, many people escaping North Korea, by the way, are not idealistic. They, they just, if you can imagine being a diplomat from North Korea, even of the highest stature in North Korea, as soon as you land in somewhere like Italy or Greece or wherever it might be, you're definitely the poorest diplomat in town. Because they're they're not given any real resources, the embassies are are threadbare and sparsely furnished. Furnished, so it's some people they just want to leave, they just want to escape and live this life, you know, the life of what it's like to be in the West. But he didn't really judge why they wanted to leave, and and mm -hmm. and it was in the midst of that that he got a, a message from the commercial attaché in the North Korean embassy in Madrid. And that's when, that's sort of the beginning of the end. Okay, yeah, please take us through that. Although I do want to comment one thing you said about that being such a, a sparse embassy there. From what I understand it, these North Korean embassies are hubs of criminal activity because they're kind of expected to raise funds for their own place in that country as well as to channel or you know send funds back to the North Korean regime as well, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. There's not a lot of diplomacy going on by North Korea, period. So the embassies don't play that role that they traditionally do. So even some embassies do have a role in terms of interacting with the rest of the world. So 
the embassy in Italy, for example, is in charge of negotiating food aid with the UN food aid program. And so that's one of its main roles. There's obviously a, a delegation of North Koreans to the United Nations, and that's there is no U.S. embassy for North Korea. There's no there's no North Korean embassy in the U.S., and there's obviously no U.S. embassy in North Korea. Mm-hmm. But many of these units around the world, their their main goal, besides a little bit of interacting with other governments, is criminal activity, and they use the privileges of a foreign diplomat to facilitate those crimes. You know, they use. <laughs> You refer to it as a diplomatic pouch, but a diplomatic pouch can be a large container. It doesn't have to be an actual pouch. So they would use that to do things like facilitate computer hacking. They're remarkable at that. They did counterfeit currency, counterfeit cigarette smuggling, any kind of crime. And, and, and actually, no no crime was too small. They They would do things that would earn thousands of dollars of profits because North Korea is so desperate for U.S. currency, they'll take whatever they can get. And these little embassies are all put under pressure to make money. And that's one of their main goals. The people who live in the embassy don't have a particularly good life. You know, the, the, their, 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 their job is to send money back, not spend money on the embassy. So that's why they're mm-hmm. so empty and so basic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's truly a country like no other. Definitely. So then, so in Spain, what happened was the commercial attaché was in a particularly privileged position. Many diplomats, the way they keep control of the diplomats is they never let them go out without somebody else with them. So it's, they go out in groups of two and they essentially spy on each other. You know, they keep an eye on each other. Mm -hmm. And then they often keep their families back home in their country, back in North Korea. So, so if the father, for example, were to escape, he would know that his family is back in North Korea and that they would be thrown in a prison camp for his for his treason. So in this case, and in the case of Italy as well, the diplomats actually got to have their wife and their children with them. So the commercial attaché had his wife and his son in the embassy in Spain. So he was in a unique position to kind of get out and save his nuclear family. So he got in touch with Adrian's group through clandestine channels and suggested that, suggested that he wanted to escape. And Adrian actually made a kind of reconnaissance visit under a, a false name to visit that embassy, kind of pretending to be a businessman, and learned in that process that he would like to escape with his family. And But even more than that, that he thought that others from the embassy would also leave at the same time. And there was this prospect, though not entirely clear how likely, that the whole embassy would defect. And if the whole embassy defected, they actually didn't need to leave the embassy. Like the embassy could itself become the home of Adrian's long-planned government in exile. So what commenced was a plan to figure out, there's two, there's kind of two paths this could take. One could be that we're rescuing a family of three, and one is that the whole embassy defects and each one of them had a had a different there were different steps would be taken and if it was the case of the family then the primary concern of of Cholema civil defense was to make sure that it didn't look like a clear cut case of a family defecting because there's a, a, a similar to the idea that if your family is left behind and they go get thrown in prison camp there's a there's a kind of rule of the punishment of three generations of your family. So three generations of a family are punished for the wrongdoing of one member of that family. It's a very powerful tool 
So even if he was, even if they were able to rescue that nuclear family, they would be condemning his parents, her parents, and his uncles and brothers and other other people with, at the very least, a significant decline in their in their songbun, their stature, but more likely an actual some of them actually being sent to a prison camp as punishment. So to confuse the North Koreans, they had been trying this these different tactics to make it not look like a clear-cut defection. In one case, though, I, I never was able to get to the absolute bottom of it. They they made a they, they created a fake death for a North Korean in a, in a European country. In this case, they thought, okay, there's three members of this family. Can't do a fake death. But what we could do is make it look like a kidnapping. And it sounds pretty crazy even, even thinking about it, but it was especially crazy in terms of what happened. But they, so this, this was by far the biggest operation this group has ever done. It was a very confident and ambitious plan. And essentially, they returned to Spain, a, a large contingent of this group. They bought fake guns, the kind of guns that are used in movie sets. So they're very realistic, but they, they were actually, they weren't, they didn't even fire blanks. They fired like plastic pellets and, and other equipment. And they, they staged a raid on the embassy. So Adrian showed up at the door wearing a suit with, with a gift bag. The other members were out of view just around the corner, including Christopher on. Later on, we should mention that he really had no idea what the plan was before this started <laughs> until that morning. Because he, 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 he joined at the last minute and was only briefed, you know, hours before it all began. So they, he got the North Korean, one of the assistants to open the door. And he said, I, I have a gift for Mr. So. And the North Korean allowed him in to sit on a bench, recognizing him because he had visited before and went to fetch the commercial attache. When, when he went away, Adrian opened the door and the whole group came in with and pulled balaclavas on, took their guns out, and it looked on camera like a, an armed invasion of the embassy. And they, they kind of quickly took everyone and put them in one room. They were tied up. They had bags put on their heads in some cases. And they went from door to door to try to kind of clear the building and make sure that there was no one left. And that's how the, the mission began. And everything was going well. They took the attache in the basement and they started the discussion about, okay, are we doing a family rescue or are we doing an embassy defection sort of thing? And what do we need to do if we're going to try this defection? How do we address the staff? And, and as they were discussing this, what they didn't know at the time, because they really aren't professionals, you know, they, they had never, none of these people had ever done an armed invasion of anything. Even Christopher on his job was intelligence gathering in the, in the Marines. He wasn't really, you know, raiding buildings and that kind of thing. So during this time, they, they had actually missed one woman who was the wife of one of the other diplomats, and she really panicked, thinking that her life was at, in danger. And she jumped from a balcony, and she injured herself quite severely. I think she hurt her hip, and she also cut her head. So she was in a bad shape, kind of crawling. She, there was, a, there was a, an exit from the embassy that's not easily known about unless you're you know, part of the embassy. There's a little secret door to the outside. So she crawled to this door and then crawled into the street, where a passerby saw her and thought there was a true, you know, a car accident or something worse had happened. He pulled over and took her to a nearby clinic. They couldn't get anything out of her and they, they, they assumed that she was Chinese. They tried to call the Chinese embassy. They realized that she didn't speak Chinese. Eventually they got her, they got a Google Translate going and she said to them in a complete panic that people were eating 
her colleagues inside the embassy. And of course, the Spanish police were completely flabbergasted by a statement like that. It later emerged that people in North Korea are often taught that Americans and South Koreans are cannibals. And so she assumed that these were Americans or, or South Koreans who were there to oh eat them. So the police showed up at the embassy and in, inside, not a single member there knows anyone's even missing yet. They just, they're just they just proceeding with the plan. Everything's going smoothly. It's only about an hour in. And they had planned to be leaving very, very shortly after that. So when the police rocked up, they saw on the camera, the police at the door, they thought, how is it possible that they know what's going on? And But Adrian, as a very confident under pressure, they dusted him off, you know, they tidied him up and he put on a little pin, you know, the famous dear leader pin. That's the little red flag of North Korea. And he went to the door. Obviously, he looks Korean. And he said to them in Spanish that he listened to them. And then he basically said, look, if you have a problem, you need to go through the appropriate channels. And he was very kind of gruff. And in a way, he acted like a North Korean official might, you know, <laughs> and they actually didn't know what to do with themselves. You know, later on in the, in the in the testimony of the police, they they were super panicked and couldn't figure out what to do. And they, they obviously couldn't enter the embassy because it was a sovereign nation's territory, technically. They have no jurisdiction over inside. They have to be invited in by the police, by the by the by the occupants. So they they just waited outside. But obviously this this set off a real panic among Cholama civil defense themselves, the members, but also they had to tell the attache what had happened. And he had a real meltdown because he was already feeling nervous, as you as you might, because, you know, you're, you're trained to think that the North Korean state is an omnipresent, all-seeing force. And he was already feeling nervous that, you know, things were taking a long time and they hadn't left yet. And when he found out that somebody actually left and the police had been there, he really changed his tone suddenly and said, it started saying, I don't know if this is going to work. So over the next several hours... He, he, he managed to persuade himself that, that it was safer to stay in the embassy and pretend like it didn't happen, that he wasn't trying to escape. What added to it as well was the phone started ringing nonstop in the embassy, and that made people feel really nervous. And obviously, this is a, a sparsely furnished embassy with hard floors. There was just this penetrating ringing going on throughout the whole embassy for hours because somebody was trying to call and it, it just it obviously felt like you know the government knew what was going on so eventually the attache said you guys have to leave take the cars if you want the embassy cars just leave get out of here and i'll sort it out and he you know he said i'm going to tell people that you tried to kidnap me and we and we and we managed to escape we fought back there's a couple of funny little details but he he, he, they, they, all, they call lots of Ubers to the front of the embassy just to see what the police do or if there was police there. Um, and then they cancel all the Ubers. Eventually, most of the members of the group escape in the cars, the embassy cars. They just all drive out, at like, you know, like banshees, different directions, and they abandon the cars. Adrian and another member, they do call an Uber out the other side of the embassies. It's actually through quite a lot of it's in this neighborhood of the city that's really full of mansions, but there's a couple of these empty, overgrown lots. So he jumped over the fence and he got a taxi on the other side. I actually visited all these places myself in, in the writing huh. of the book. They all set off in motion they, and they essentially, they, they, they connect to the group that was not in the embassy and they get their passports and they flee Spain via Portugal. 
So they go overland to Portugal and they, they all got flights out from there. And, and that's kind of the first, the first part of what, what was to come on this whole Spanish operation. <laughs> Bradley, I'll tell you what, it's, it's hard for me to overstate just how audacious and, you know, even visionary, I guess that Adrian is with all this. And it, it clearly, it ultimately did not work out in the way that they had thought, but I can see why what you mentioned earlier about the possibility of not just getting the embassy to defect, but turning it in to the first embassy of the new government in exile, I can see how that prize would be so valuable to him that he was willing to do, you know, take on this incredible risk and get these other people involved as well. Man, yeah. it's just amazing that he would be able to put all this together and then some come so close to succeeding without any significant training, without any significant funds, just with a group of volunteers who all just believed in the cause. It's, it's, it still blows my mind, even though I've, you know, read about this story through your book and through so many articles over the past couple of years, but it's just got me shaking my head, honestly. Yeah. Well, and, and what happens inside the embassy after that is kind of a little bit unknown because the only thing, only information we have is the police report and the, the testimony of the North Koreans. But by the time the police show up, some other North Koreans that were students it seems like they were the ones calling the embassy. They were students who were due to show up there and they were panicking because nobody was answering the phone. So they came, they, they were checking in, in other words, but, they, but no one answered the phone. They came to the embassy and they jumped the fence feeling like something was really amiss. The police came and were invited in. They took pictures of this crime scene that looked pretty crazy. You know, there's like fake guns on the floor. There's there's plastic ties for people's hands. There's some knives they use to cut the plastic ties. There's some pepper spray, which is kind of the closest thing they had to a weapon. And according to the police, they had injuries or they reported they had been involved in fights with these assailants. But my personal belief is that they probably injured each other to make it work as a story because they knew they were mm -hmm. going to have to answer to the North Korean, you know, up higher ups. What's interesting is so, so on the Adrian side, the group, they decided all to go to the U.S. immediately so they could sort of convene, but also explain their story to the different authorities that they thought would be pretty concerned about what had happened. So one of the first things they did was they sent an anonymous letter to the Spanish government saying, and, and, the, and the, their hope was, look, let's make this all go away. We were trying to do something. We were trying to rescue a diplomat. He decided not to, to escape. It's in your interest not to talk about it so that he doesn't have a problem. And it's in our interest for you to know the truth so that you don't think that we committed a crime, right? So they sent this anonymous letter to the Spanish government explaining what had happened. And then they also reached out to the FBI as soon as they landed to explain to them what happened. And, and, and before they left, they had taken a, essentially a rucksack and filled it with every document, every USB stick and computer that was in the North Korean embassy. They stole everything from the embassy. They, and so they, they met the FBI and they said, look, we have a crazy story to tell you and here's what it is. The FBI is listening to this, you know, eyes wide open, almost couldn't believe the story. They agreed to take the intelligence materials in one of the subsequent meetings and, and return it to Adrian's group later on. But what Adrian didn't realize was that kind of like the time he showed up at the embassy in Shenzhen with this group of people, he was, he was operating on a lot of assumptions. Back then, he was assuming the embassy would accept these people because they were they were valid asylum seekers. But in fact, they didn't accept them because the embassy didn't have space for them and there was no coordination, right? 
In this case, he assumed the Spanish government would understand. He understood. He assumed that the U.S. government were his friends. But in reality, this was a really bad time to be asking a favor of the U.S. government. Donald Trump at that time was in the midst of all of his negotiations with Kim Jong Un. He didn't want anything to do with a group like this could scupper his deal of the century with North Korea that he was trying to arrange. You know, a deal that would make him a Nobel Peace Prize winner in his eyes. Mm-hmm. So, so when he was speaking to these FBI agents, he didn't realize he was essentially admitting to a crime, because it is a crime, even no matter what, to put to tie someone up, you know, who's not part of who's not agreed to be tied up. It's it's a crime. It's 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 essentially kidnapping or it, it's it's unlawful mm-hmm. detention. So he was essentially admitting a crime to the U.S. government. The U.S. government wasn't interesting and interested in pursuing him, but as soon as the Spanish who didn't believe that it was the act of individuals. They, they thought that perhaps it was the act of a foreign government like the U.S., who they thought were cowboys who did things like this, especially after 9-11 when all these Islamic extremists were picked up off the streets, just in put in vans and disappeared. That was against the laws of those countries in Italy and Spain. So they thought this was here, here, here was the U.S. government again sending in cowboys and, and leaving a mess. So they didn't. So they didn't actually believe it was a, a non-government activity, and so they they pursued criminal charges. They figured out the names, you know, through through police work, and they 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 wrote a letter to the United States saying, under our mutual legal treaty about extradition, we are seeking these people and any information you have on them, and by law, the U.S. government had to respond with, yeah, we know these people, and they actually just came and told us exactly what they did. <laughs> so so. It, he was he was talking to what he thought were friends, but in reality, they they honored the treaty beyond instead of honoring the mission of what these guys were trying to do. And so, it was and and and, and ironically, the FBI called all of these people and said, "By the way, we have we have real intelligence that you are now targets of assassination of the North Korean state." So they so on one hand they were telling these guys that kind of thing. On the other hand, they were helping the Spanish with the case. The Spanish brought formal extradition request, and so Christopher was actually visiting. He he was due to come to Adrian's house to drop something off, and when he entered the, the room, the U.S. Marshals were there, and they arrested Christopher. Adrian had already disappeared by that point, you know, just shortly before. So Christopher was arrested, and he and just to kind of go back a little bit on Christopher's thing, you know, he he knew there was a mission in Spain. He thought it was going to be like the other ones, you know, sitting and making people feel comfortable and that kind of thing. When he landed in Spain, he found out that it was much more ambitious, but he kind of just placed trust in Adrian and the group that this is going to work out. And, mm-hmm. and his, his main thought was, what kind of a barbecue are we going to have tonight when we rescue these <laughs> North Koreans? Because this is a big deal for them and we want to make mm-hmm. them feel safe and comfortable. Anyways, so he's back in America and he shows up at Adrian's house and he gets arrested. He's still thinking there's no way. This is a misunderstanding. I just met the FBI. They were so friendly to me. They, there was no suggestion of a crime had been committed and they were pursuing it. But the FBI were nowhere to be seen. This was the U.S. Marshal Service acting on a request funneled through the U.S. Department of Justice. It didn't go through the FBI. And he ended up in jail and he meets his lawyer for the first time. He says, OK, when can I get out? You know, it's dinner soon at my house and I don't want my wife to worry. And the lawyer said, I have bad news for you. You're not going to be leaving jail potentially at all because they might consider you a flight risk that you would want to avoid this extradition treaty. They may just keep you in jail and they may never let you out until you're extradited to Spain. 
and that was when the you know the real depression and anxiety sunk in for him and he mm-hmm. had a long a long period of time in jail eventually the judge agreed to let him have bail and to to have home arrest but he couldn't even leave the front door of his house so if his wife showed up with groceries he had to wait on the doorstep while she brought them in over time the judge let gave him greater and greater privileges now he can kind of wander around he still has to wear an ankle bracelet he still has to report to the local Department of Justice affiliate. But he's essentially now fighting extradition to Spain. It's been years. He's, he lost an appeal, and he's now appealing to a higher court. And essentially, they're asking, don't, don't follow through on this extradition. It's, it's not right. You know, he, he's actually at risk in Spain. He could be assassinated. Mm-hmm. Adrian and another member of the group disappeared. They completely disappeared. So they, he's literally on the run as a fugitive from the U.S. Marshal Service who are trying to execute a, an arrest warrant on behalf of Spain. So he's been living since 2019 on the run, presumably in America somewhere, off the grid. And, and same for the person he's with. So it's, it's really an incredible story. And nobody would have guessed that it would be going on this long. I mean, I think the group itself thought, oh, this will be cleared up. Surely somebody will step up and say, this isn't right. This shouldn't happen. Instead, it's just going on and on because it all comes down to that assumption that Adrian had, had, which is he assumed that because he was doing, he had a righteous cause that somebody would step up to protect him or to save him or to save his group or to at least block this extradition. And in reality, Nobody's stepping up for him. Nobody's nobody from the U.S. government and Spain. They they're not dropping the charges. It's really kind of a purgatory situation for them. Yeah, that, that's a lot to take in. All of that, honestly, it's what a situation. So I, I feel very very hesitant to kind of you know criticize people that put it all on the line like this for such a big potential payoff. But I have to say that it's. It would have been very clear. It is very clear to me that, you know, you cannot be open and honest about a situation like this with any government institution after the fact and think that they are going to somehow be on your side and supportive of your not necessarily illegal, but at the very least extra legal activities, you know, involving a foreign embassy. So I was kind of shocked to read that they had just answered all the FBI's questions, that they contacted them, that they'd been you know open about everything that happened. Because that just doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that in the end, the U.S. government did not have their backing uh, in any way at all. So it's really unfortunate. And poor Christopher, like you said, you know, he's kind of got the biggest heart out of the whole group is what it sounds like. And he ends up suffering the most, even though he didn't even know what was going to happen until just a few hours before it went down. And now he's been in jail, you know, for months and months and months, house arrest for years at this point and still in doubt as to what will happen to him. So it's yeah what a story yeah it's really it's a it's a heartbreaking story to be honest and when i first started i actually didn't know where this would end up i thought perhaps while i was working on it that it would be resolved but i've come to the conclusion now that it's unlikely to be resolved anytime soon there's really no easy solution unless spain drops the charges or perhaps the us government could block the case even still there's a chance that even Adrian, even in the best case scenario, would, would actually be deported from the United States because he, though he's American in, in every possible way, by passport, he's a Mexican citizen. Mm-hmm. I think by law, he would be deported 
you know, and he'd have to live in Mexico yeah. or somewhere else, you know. So he's he could almost become kind of stateless in a way because of this as well. So there there's no solution that's going to happen unless somebody steps up. The U.S. government could step up and say, "We know this guy. We know the details of this case. We've known him for a long time. He's what he says he is. He's not some kind of intelligence affiliate of us. He's actually. They could even say we 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 don't agree with what he did, you know." But we are not going to send him to, to, to jail in Spain because he's a human rights defender that we know well. That's one option. The Spanish could drop the charges that that would be that would instantly solve all their problems because there would be no mm -hmm. criminal charges anywhere. You know, even if the U.S. were to stop the extradition, the Spanish would still have an extradition request. They could they could send out a request on Interpol so those people could never travel again without being the fear of being mm -hmm. arrested, you know? So it's really somebody at a very high level has to step up. And if not, nothing will change. And that's why they're in this kind of limbo. And there's really not a good solution. Unless people know more about the story and they and they kind of put pressure on the US government, I just don't think anything's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough situation. And um, do you, is your perception or your, do you think that the Spanish government is at all likely to drop these charges or are they like, you know, enthusiastically pursuing extradition even now after more than three years? I think that the Spanish are not like super, it's not on the top of their minds, this case. It's just sort of sitting there in limbo. But I think that they're operating, there's a lot of misconceptions. I think they're operating under the misconception, even if it was a mission to rescue these diplomats, that it was a U.S. government-led initiative. Right. And, and and because of that, they want to put the U.S. government on, under pressure. And in a way, it's almost like calling bluff. Oh, you say you had nothing to do with this. Well, we're going to bring criminal charges. If you send them over, then we'll know you didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> if you don't send them over, then we know what you were really up to. And we'll and we're going to complain about it at the highest levels, you know. Mm. So it's mm -hmm. it's kind of it's painful. The, the misconception of this is really painful because okay. it's it's basically the consequences. This group of very moral, never broke a law in their lives, people, their lives are upended. And and if you could even argue further is they were helping people. They were helping people and now they're not helping people anymore. Mm -hmm. So the consequences for them and as individuals and, and also anybody else who would have liked to try to escape. And, and, and maybe you could even argue they had the potential to make a difference in North Korea over time. I mean, I, I'm not sure if anyone would have the same confidence of Adrian that they were going to cause the fall of the regime, but but maybe they would have been one little straw, and 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 some other straw would would be the one that breaks the camel's back. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like they accomplished a lot of net good for the world without, and up until this incident, anyway, up until this incident, without any significant negative consequences. And you know, I have to admit, I can see things from the perspective of the Spanish government, the Spanish prosecutors, like it is very hard to believe that this happened without any U.S. government support, that this is a bunch of volunteers using personal credit cards and BB guns and Uber to accomplish a daylight raid on North Korean embassy. Like I, I totally understand why that would be met with skepticism, to say the very least. Yeah, exactly. But but it hasn't seemed to me like they've even been very interested in the in any other story. And I think their, their, their point of view is, okay, okay, we'll hear your story when you show up in Spain under the extradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's even possible that the whole case falls apart as soon as they arrive, because my understanding is that 
almost everyone who was in the embassy was sent back to North Korea. The mm. attaché, it's unclear, but you know, you'd have to testify in court in order for this to happen. North Korea has never testified in a in a foreign court case, to my knowledge. Mm. Okay. So, so it's even kind of an interesting problem. But the the risk is Spanish legal system is different than in America, and you can actually go to jail in different ways than you can in America. You know, so if if there's no witnesses, there's still the possibility that the judge could sentence you, you know, so it's, right. it's a, it's a big gamble to take to go face that, that case. Okay. Yeah. So I, I take it then that Christopher and his attorney have just decided that the risks outweigh the potential gains of uh, extradition. And then the case, you know, being dropped within a week or, you know, something like that, they think that's still too much of a risk to take. Exactly. That's exactly how I see it. Okay. They, they don't know, they don't really know what to do with it. I see. Okay, so in, in the meantime, is Christopher, like right now, to your knowledge, is he, you know, drowning in legal bills or something like that? I mean, is he able to work? Is he able to, you know, live life even under house arrest right now? Or is he just kind of suffering at the moment? He, he's suffering a lot from, from my conversations with him because he just wants to work and have a family and be normal. But he, he's so affiliated with this story that he can't really do anything. People try to hire him for a job. It doesn't take long before they decide, you know what, this is too big of a reputational risk for us. And they get rid of him. And and so he struggles to make money, even though he's extremely skilled and talented. He went to business school, has a great track record. Even before this whole thing happened, he he was in the midst of launching a startup. And, and that all fell apart. The investments fell through because of this case. For me, one of the sad things as well is, you know, he's really has this really remarkable wife and they're very selfless people in general, but they've put off having a family because of this, having children. And, and I find that to be just really a painful part of this whole story, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that would that would be very difficult to, you know, just as an example, to have a child right now and, you know, be born into this incredibly stressful situation where your father could potentially disappear to another country, maybe even permanently. You know, I, I can totally understand why they would want to put off until they know more about what the future holds for them. And so, Adrian, and Adrian actually has a child mm -hmm. that was a toddler when he when he went on the run who doesn't see her father. Yeah. So, Bradley, I want to ask you this and I'll understand if you don't answer or if you can't answer. But have you been able to get in touch with Adrian since 2019 at all? I mean, he certainly seems to trust you based on your long history. I haven't been in touch with him in a long time, so I've had to try every other way I possibly can to kind of get to the bottom of the story, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I reached everybody I could find on earth, whoever met or knew Adrian at any point, including up until as far as I could. And, and that was kind of the, that was the journey I had to go on to do this. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, he's a guy who can clearly, he can land on his feet is, is the way I think, you know, he's faced a lot of adversity and he's, and he's made it through all of that in the past. So I'm just wondering, do you think that he'll resurface if charges are dropped from Spain and, but not until then? I, I don't know what he'll do. I mean, he has the choice of showing up at a police station, turning himself in. He would be imprisoned or jailed on this extradition and he would not be granted bail, you know, not like Christopher, because he would be considered a genuine flight risk Obviously, because he's yeah. already proven that he would run away from <laughs> right. the authorities. So right. he would have to be in jail. The, the upside of that is he would have visitation and things like that with his family. Downside is he would be one step closer to being extradited and he could either stay in the U.S. 
do like Christopher and fight, but you'll be serving a lot of time in jail that that doesn't count mm-hmm. to the ultimate penalty. So let's say he spent years in jail in America fighting the case, but he loses in Spain. They'll treat him like he just arrived and that he hasn't been in jail. So he would, oh. so, and then, and then he faces the possibility of being imprisoned in Spain for 20, 25 years under the current charges. So you can kind of understand why he's sort of opting to stay in hiding because he's hoping, maybe hoping that there's still a, a political solution that could come about before he lives that life, you know? Right. Absolutely. Do you think, and I know this would pretty much just be speculation on your part, but do you think that he has any influential supporters within the U.S. government right now? Do you think that there would be anybody he could, he could reach out to while he's a wanted fugitive or would they, you know, wash their hands of that relationship if he did so? I think the sad thing is that there are people in the U.S. government and affiliated with the U.S. government who know Adrian's character and his track record and who who care about him. But I don't think there's anybody willing to put their neck on the line. And there's nobody in a very powerful position who's willing to step up because in a way this mission was so, I guess you could say, inappropriate in the eyes of the U.S. government in the midst of like genuine U.S. State Department negotiations, they were doing this stuff that they just can't endorse it. And as a result, that's why it's in this kind of purgatory. So I'm not feeling very hopeful at the moment that somebody's going to step up, but it's always possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, I guess I have to just wait and see what happens with all of this. Yeah, th- I mean, this case has really got me just glued to my seat in such a way, and you know, even more so now that we've talked about it. So I'll certainly be looking for updates on Adrian and on on Christopher as well in the future. And I do understand, you know, the U.S. position because I recall 2019, I recall thinking that maybe this would finally be the moment that, you know, there was massive change in North Korea's relationship with the rest of the world with U.S. president, South Korean president, both crossing the DMZ, portions of the DMZ coming down. I mean, it really did look like there was light at the end of the tunnel for a little while there, although we're kind of back to the status quo now. So I understand that there would be some bitterness at anybody who would potentially mess that up at such a tenuous moment. But at the same time, that was over three years ago now. And we've, you know, kind of back to normalized relationships with normalized relations with North Korea now. So I hope that there is a path out of this for Christopher and for Adrian and for the others. Yep. I hope so too. I I feel, I feel like of all the stories I've ever covered, this is one that I feel quite emotionally connected to. So I'm, I'm feeling the same way as you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not often I find myself rooting for a wanted fugitive, honestly, but this is one of those cases where I hope everything works out really well for Adrian in the future. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thank you, Bradley. This has been amazing, honestly, and I know that you're going to continue to cover this case and you know follow it, but now that your book has been published, are you working on another book right now or do you have any projects going on at the moment? Well, I started a company called Project Brazen with my old colleague from the Wall Street Journal, and we always have lots of projects happening. We have a big project about Havana syndrome that's been running, uh, a new one about antiquity theft from Cambodia. So we really created something that does these kinds of stories on a bigger scale in an independent way. So you can definitely keep track of us on by following Project Brazen. Yeah, I, I have been actually already now that you mention it, and I've been listening to your Havana Syndrome podcast. The title is The Sound, right? Or is it The Noise? I, I've it's already the got sound, the sound, The Sound, Mystery okay. of Havana Syndrome. Yeah, Mystery, yeah it's, it's very interesting stuff, and it's, it's you know stayed in the news, and it's in the news again now, almost continuously since 2016. So it's a, a very fascinating subject, and it's also one that I've only barely, barely touched on here in the podcast just for 
a couple of minutes of one episode over a year ago. So anyone who is as interested in that as I am should definitely check out Bradley's podcast by Project Brazen. So on that note, where can people connect with you after they listen to this if they want to follow your your ongoing work? I mean, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Bradley Hope or follow Project Brazen. We have a newsletter called Whale Hunting that is sort of about the hidden world of wealth and power that is also could be fun for your listeners. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to sign up for that for myself. Actually, I haven't done that yet. That sounds interesting. Okay, well, thank you so much, Bradley. This has been a wonderful talk, and I know that the listeners are going to love this one. It's Like I said, it's really got me glued to my seat, and I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss it, all of the research that took you so long to put together. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, well, take care. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram, at Spycraft 101, and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there is lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.